It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Guys, welcome back to Watch Time. Today we have a very special episode with a special guest. We have Andy Miller, the CEO and founder of Energy Esports. Andy has had an incredible career. He started multiple businesses, sold them to Apple, worked directly with Steve Jobs. Uh, he's always been someone that I've really admired, his approach to business. I think he's um, been incredibly action-oriented. He's hungry for knowledge, and he's always been incredibly generous to Elliot and I with the stories and lessons that he's learned. So I'm very, very excited to have him on Watch Time today and for you guys to hopefully be able to hear a little bit more about his background and for for all of us to learn a little bit from the stories and experiences that he's had. So welcome, Andy. Thank you. That was so nice. That is a nice <laughs> way of saying you are old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's actually, there's so much interesting stuff to cover. We were chatting about it before. You know, there's everything from, you know, obviously energy having a team in the Overwatch League to the crazy backstory before that. Like, there's actually so much interesting stuff to get through. I think Grace is probably going to kick us off with the uh, the pre-esports kind of questions, though, because I think that's definitely her forte. Yeah, I mean, I think to get started, Andy, we'd love to just hear a little bit more about what a younger Andy was like, what you studied at university, how you got your start in business and sort of what those early days in your career were like for you. Okay, that's a good one. Well, the younger Andy had luxurious hair, amazing hair, <laughs> like Elliot's hair. Kind of. <laughs> I'll post some pictures, but I could do a lot with the hair. But then, uh, you know, once you got married and the kids and gone. The stress. Gone. Oh, Believe me, it was uh, it was wonderful. I miss those days. But I um, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. So for anyone listening who knows sort of sports, Boston is like hardcore East Coast. You talk about sports, whether you like sports or not, because that's how you fit in in Boston. And most Bostonians don't root for one team. Like I love baseball, so I'm a Red Sox fan. But you have to also watch the Bruins in the winter, and you have to watch the Patriots. God forbid you missed you know Tommy Brady. I know you have one of your uh, buddies there. Who who's a big Brady fan. Lays and, uh, big Brady fan. Lays there. Unbelievable. And, um, you know, it, it's just the way it is out there. And so, and I love sports and I love playing sports and uh, I wanted to get into sports. That's all I really cared about at the time for a while. Um, I went to college and I got into sports by doing journalism. So I, at my high school, I was like editor of the sports section for the newspaper. In college, I was editor of the sports section uh, for the paper as well. And I did the radio a little bit and covered some football games and I liked it and I got better at it and I, the writing, especially, I really liked the writing. And so here I am a senior in college and uh, I just went to a liberal arts college up in upstate New York. And my dad's like, okay, what are you going to do? I was like, uh, I, I don't know. He's like, well, you got to do something, right? You're going to be a senior. I said, well, maybe I'll get into advertising. My sisters are in advertising. And he's like, you know, um, I pay for their apartment, both of them. They barely get by. <laughs> I was like, okay. He's like, you're not, not advertising. I said, well, I, I love journalism. 
uh, advertising's out because uh, I, I didn't want to say journalism because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sports writer, but I knew also like if you want to be a sports writer, especially back then, this is, you know, before the internet, really, you ended up going to like some high school in nowhere's Texas to cover football for four years before you earned your chops to do something else. So he's like, why don't you just apply to law school? Just, just apply somewhere. Just see how you do. Take the test. And I was like, okay, you know, so I did. And um, I ended up getting to the school I liked, which was Boston College Law School. And I went there. And um, this is where I made a big mistake in life. I got caught up in the fact that by some miracle, I did really well in my first year of law school. Like if you know law school, it's all about your first year. That's it. The second, third year are worthless. You, everyone in, in all the law schools take the exact same courses, constitutional law, contract, civil procedure, property, and then you apply for your job. And if you're lucky or if you're good, you get picked for whatever you wanted. They wind you, they used to wind you and dine you. You work on them during the summer and they make you an offer right then before your next two years of, of law school. And then you fuck around for two years of law school and then you get this big job. So I was like, I'm going to go to law school because I'm going to be an agent on sports, right? I couldn't be an athlete. I couldn't be a writer. I'm going to be an agent. And, um, but I did really well. And so I was trying to figure out what firm to work for. Right. So I, my dad's like, Oh, apply to the bigger firm. So I applied to this one firm that represented the Red Sox and the Patriots. Oh, okay. And I got the job and it paid a ton of money. I couldn't believe it, you know? And, um, I was, I got engaged and now I'm like, I gotta, I gotta take the job at the law firm. I got engaged so young. Oh my God. <laughs> still married to the same woman, but <laughs> there's a life lesson right there. You know, if Henry was still here, my son, it's like, maybe wait a little bit. But, um, <laughs> I, uh, I went and so I was like, I'm going to go work at this, this firm. Right. And they were so cool. And I got to work on Red Sox stuff when I was there and I'm like, great. And I graduated. We got married. I'm like, all right, let's go. Can I work on the Red Sox account? They're like, no, you're a first year <laughs> lowly, nothing, you know, cockroach. You can go in the library and work on, um, oh, you know what they assigned me to? Oh, because of my sailor outfit, they assigned me to maritime law. I'd never <laughs> been on a boat before, and I kept calling it a boat. And the, the guys who were like in charge, were like, no, these are vessels, these are not boats. Please don't ever say it again. <laughs> I was like, I hate this. And I You're was like, terrible. dude, I'm just here for the Red Sox. <laughs> I, I, I was. I was like, hey, is there any extra tickets? Like, I know we have a box. And they're like, You're, there's 400 lawyers here. You're never working on the Red Sox. I was like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I was, I was bad at it. Like I wasn't, that was like my lesson. Uh, we actually have a podcast with Hector called Energy Duo Podcast. We talked a little bit about that today on the one that dropped, which was, I, I, I got fired. I was bad. Like it wasn't a good time. So, it was kind of a recession. Yeah. I wanted to ask you on this because I saw your tweet yeah. the other day where you said that you got fired from your first job and then decided you were never going to work for anyone else. Yeah, again it was it. It was early. It was young. Right. And I had done a bunch of jobs. I worked at like fast food places. I worked at, a, at the ta ta pulling tax returns, you know, manually uh, at, at a warehouse. That was, that was amazing. But um, I was like, uh, not good. I wasn't good at it. I hated it. I was just, you know, and it was a lot of hours, even something you hate. And I was like, man, I, and I'd get up, I'd take the bus in and I, you know, I was like, this is, and I'm a lawyer at a big firm. I was getting paid well. And this was the height of what my job was going to be at this point. And I was like, this sucks. And yeah. they noticed, yeah, they were like, you don't seem to love this. And before they said that to me, they gave me a, uh, a review and I still have it. I should go up and get it and show you. It's a piece of paper. And they typed it out and they handed me, it was only this big. They cut it up. That was your review. They did it for everybody. I don't know if that was the legal way to do it, to not get sued, but it was three lines. And it said, you seem disinterested. You told a partner to give the work to someone else. 
uh, and there was something else. I can't remember. And on the bottom it says, and I kept it because it was so ludicrous. It says, if this is not uh, turned around in a 360 degree turnaround within 90 days, you'll be terminated. And I read it. I was in shock. I was like, wait, a 360 degree turnaround puts me in exactly the same place I am now. <laughs> keep, on, keep on going. Hold the course. Yeah, they're like, yeah, you're, you're an asshole. Just stop talking. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, I'm going to get fired, aren't I? And they're like, probably. And then I was like, oh, they're like I came home. I they're like, you asked for Red Sox I, tickets one more time and you are out. One the more door, time. Man. Yeah. Okay, little man. Yeah. Um, and that was it. Like, I was there nine months and I got let go. And um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I just knew that I wasn't going to do this again. It wasn't going to work at anything, even if it paid a bunch of money or, you know, that just I didn't have any passion for. That was a tough way to go through life. And it was hard finding a job. This was 1994. Like, it was a recession. In I was States born. And, that's there you go. Year. The that, was, that, year. that year must have ended up going great for you, Andy. <laughs> um, and my wife was an attorney also, but she was a legal services attorney, which meant she got paid literally $7,500 a year to represent homeless people and battered women. And she's a wonderful, you know, do-gooder there. Um, but we, we didn't have anything. And I was like, okay, I got to figure this out. So long story short, I started um, basically hanging around the MIT Media Lab. Are you guys familiar with the Media Lab? I know so, it's it's meant to be like the hub of young tech entrepreneurs yes, and people yes. wanting to make stuff happen. Yes, and this is just as Internet 1.0 is starting. And I have I had a friend who was also hanging around there who worked at Disney, and he's like, we should start a company. And everybody tried to get in there. For people who don't know, MIT is Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the best tech schools in the world. And lots of famous companies started out of there, but the Media Lab was, you were the best and the brightest, and you had to apply with some wacky thing. Like, I even remember back there talking, they were talking artificial intelligence and like uh, fabrics that like understood your body and you know things that were just coming you know, to fruition now and a lot of mobile and, you know, a lot of things never see the light of day there. And I hung around and ended up hooking up with a professor and a student uh, and we licensed his senior thesis. And I was the business guy. Like, what did I know? I didn't know any business. <laughs> I didn't know anything. And um, we tried to write a business plan for an interactive TV startup. And the idea was you could watch like friends and you could take your remote control and this kid created this uh, object tracking technology where he could you could hold it over Elliot's uh, sweatshirt there and it would light up and you could press it and then you could buy it. And that's how it was. Damn. Did you have some huge entrepreneurial spirit at that time? Like, had you tried this before or were you just like, I don't have anything better to do right now, so I'm going to give it a red hot go? <laughs> I was like the kid in like middle school who'd buy the pack of juicy fruit or, you know, how, what was it? Big league chew gum or something for a 50 cents and then sell it in like 10 cent, you know, pet little packages and make like three bucks on a pack. Like I was kind of that. That nerd. was me. I have to butt in because this was Elliot. <laughs> of course. Would That's go and show. buy a 24 pack of like coke of co yeah, yeah and yeah. then take them to school and sell them for two dollars a can yeah except i didn't get nice. coke i got the off-brand coke so it was even cheaper it oh. came it came out to like 15 cents a can i don't even know how you can manufacture a the can for that much the margins margin and then you, you sell them sell them sell them to most people for two dollars like if you're a mate maybe i hook you up with a little dollar price and uh 
I think they, they ended up out like they ended up outlawing the sale of sugary drinks out of lockers because of the stuff that we were doing. <laughs> yeah, that was so, it. With this company, were you were you making money with it at the time? Because I believe oh, no. you sold it and but yeah. what was sort of what was the goal there? Yeah, this was Internet 1.0. Like this was it, right? Everything was just starting and like, uh, we were in downtown Boston and Boston was is a great hub for startups. It's probably still number two in the United States. And we had these companies next door to us that were web development companies and they were making websites. Wow. I mean, you, you look at me like, yeah, like, but no one had a website back then. And they were going public at like worth insane billions of dollars they didn't do anything they were making websites right they were trying to figure out how do you make you know commerce work on a website and sell stuff and uh it was it was an incredible time we uh i should have known the idea wasn't going to work because we had trouble raising money and back then anyone could raise money even though and we were kids i was only like 24 years old or whatever but uh kids but um we were all 24 and but we had a we had a license from mit I actually used my legal skills and negotiated the deal with, with, with MIT, got the license, uh, like a royalty-free license, and we started a company and we raised money from like 20 individuals, high net worth individuals we met through just networking. Oh, and the way we would try and raise money, you know, because there was no internet or anything, really, it was just starting, is we would print out packages of, this was a company was called Watchpoint. It was like Watchpoint and buy. It was Watchpoint and we made a logo and we printed out at like, you know, Kinko's uh, business plans and we mailed them to all the VCs in, in, right out here in Palo Alto and Sand Hill Road. And then we'd get a letter back in like a month we've reviewed your portfolio and we're sorry to say we passed, you know, it was like, <laughs> that's, it was like there, there's no like LinkedIn to hit people up on. You can't no. just like search high net worth individuals in your area. It's, it was <laughs> all just networking, like, you know, glad handing, which is something I was always terrible at doing. And eventually we got some money, we got going and I was like, okay, now what do we do? You know, I was like, we need to do a trial. And this was kind of where I grew up the most. Um, I can't believe I'm telling a story. I don't think I ever told a story, but this is where I kind of grew up the most as an adult and a business person. Like all of a sudden, someone gave us like two and a half million dollars. Like I had never seen two and a half million dollars before. Yeah. And and it's like make a company and make me money and be honest and grow this thing. And and people were throwing money around, but we were like, okay, we were three kids. Like, what do we do now? We had a professor who was our our um, mentor. And he was like, look, you got to have a trial or show people this works. I was like, oh, we got to do a trial. And they're like, you worry about the the technology. I'll get the content because this was television. So I called up like NBC and I tried to get to people. I was like, can we have a clip of uh, Friends and they, you know, for a trial at Interactive TV? And they're like, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? But the only calling card we had was the MIT. Everybody knew MIT mm. and we had this license. And somehow I convinced a local TV network to give me their, give me one, a piece of their show. And we made a little demo out of it. And, and uh, Fast Company wrote an article about it. And then I took the article and I literally like flew down to New York City and I networked my way into meeting the chief technology officer of, of, of NBC. And he's like, this seems incredible. And he gave us friends. And I was like, oh my God, I have friends. And then I went to uh, ABC, I believe. And I got the Drew Carey show. And I'm like, I got friends. I got the Drew Carey show. And then I went to the cooking channel, you know, and I got all these different channels. I had all this stuff. 
And then we had to figure out like to do more than just click on something and buy because we had to make it interactive. So I, I was writing jokes for the Drew Carey show, like extra content. You could click on it and pull out another video stream or, or side content. And we did this really elaborate trial, which was amazing. And it worked and we raised more money. And then it became very clear that the business was going to go nowhere. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was We were waiting and waiting because this wasn't through the Internet. It was through set-top boxes with remote controls. And we needed them all to become digital and they were just never happening happening. But I raised money. I became, I wasn't the CEO. I became the CEO. I did the business development. I'm like, Oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not an idiot that they fired at the law firm. I can do something here. Yeah. I can figure yeah. this thing out. And I, and you get that taste, like what you guys have done, you know, down there, you get that taste of the startup and you're like, Oh, I love this. Like being a lawyer sucked. Like, you know, having to kiss someone's ass and hope that they liked your work. Like, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. That's, but that's amazing to me. And yeah. now I can go left. I can go right. I'm doing stuff. And, you know, once you get that, you know, if you're that type of person who can handle that, 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 in, you know, unstable environment, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think a big hard. thing, a big thing for me in like, in like being like self-employed and working on your own projects is you never feel bad doing overtime. You know, I think if I was working for someone else and yeah. I know that I'm putting in all these extra hours and I'm staying late and I'm cutting yeah. into my social hours to make someone else more money, I'd be like, I, like that, that would like, I'd be like, oh, this sucks. But every time, like if I stay to the office until like 10 or 12 o'clock, like finishing a thumbnail or making a, making a thumbnail better or getting a little bit more footage for a video, I'm like, I'm doing that for me. I'm doing that yeah. because it, is the right thing for me to do. And I think that makes putting in like the big hours and grinding really, really hard so much better. And yeah. what you guys have done down there is like the key, like people say, what's the key to the startup? And you know, of course it's the, uh, you know, you have a good idea and a good space, but it's always the team. Every investor always looks at the team and then it's not just the team, but it's the culture you create, which is really the first 20 people there at, at the company, right? And if you all are like part of a real mission and you've created a real culture there, then that person doesn't mind staying until two o'clock in the morning to, to do something for the company because they own the company. They're personally, yeah. emotionally invested in this company. And if you get that, then the next 200 people people that you hire will will have the same you know the same feeling and you have to try and yeah. keep it otherwise you lose you lose your company you lose your startup and you're just a business where someone applied because they need a job and you don't ever want that no yeah yeah it's a good it's a good lesson okay so moving forward a little bit yeah um tell us about so 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 that business um you ended up selling it right that business we sold. Yeah. Well, there was another startup and they wanted the technology, which actually was great. And it's still in use today. Uh, I believe in the United States, we have direct TV and they have, um, the NFL package where they switch off between like when a team gets into the red zone, like when it's on like the 20 yard line or 10 yard line about to score, they go to that game and then they come and they keep switching, switching. So that's they actually use yeah. it. So there's nothing actually more satisfying than building something that's still used, you know, 20 wow. years later. But we sold it and to a, a company in uh, in California. And uh, a, a funny quick story uh, on, on my way to selling the company. It was another startup. Like, you know, they were doing better than we did. And they uh, actually did well and sold their business. But I was on a plane and I had the worst migraine of my life. And I'm like, no, maybe I was just stressed about trying to sell this thing. And we didn't sell it for much, but I was so stressed out. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna get up to first class because I may like throw up here. I feel so bad. So I get it, I get a ticket and um, I'm sitting next to the window and I have a pillow and this big hulking, gorgeous man sits down next to me in first class and I look at him and I'm like, oh, I know who you are. 
and I can't remember his name even now, but there was an unbelievable reality TV show when reality TV was just starting called Joe Millionaire. And it was a guy who pretended he was just an average Joe and like, you know, and he'd date all these girls and then they, they'd find out, oh, he's actually a super millionaire. And so they love him for himself, not for his money. And this show was it took the United States by storm and they were like one or two episodes away from the finale. And um, I was sitting next to him. I looked at him and he was like, uh, I was like, OK, you know, he didn't want to be bothered. I don't want to bother him. And then he looks at me, and goes, look, you know who I am? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, I can't sit on the aisle. Every single person is going to bother us the entire trip. Just trust me. Can I sit against the window? And I'm like, dude, I'm really feeling lousy. But he's like, please, I'll do anything. Please, you know, if you want an autograph. I'm like, I don't, I don't want your autograph. I'm cool. So I sit in the aisle and every every flight attendant was like, you know, they noticed him. And then I was like the invisible, ugly guy. And I had hair back there, Elliot, right? But it, it was like this great lesson of like, you know, people were in love with celebrity. They were like, oh, can I, you know, they were like leaning over me, like, excuse me, pushing my head away to, you know, like just to talk to the guy and, and deliver his food and everything. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this was like what celebrities really like. <laughs> he was really yeah. nobody. And we probably never, never heard from him again, you know? But uh, like it was the beginning of these first like internet celebrities, these reality celebrities. That's crazy. Kind of fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So a little divergence, but uh, you know, flat fast forward. So we sold it to this company out in California, and they said, "Hey, we we just bought this tiny little startup in London, and it does SMS short message services. You know what that is?" And I said, yeah. "No." And it says it's text messaging. We don't have it here in the United States, but why don't you go out there and help them? You know, build the little business in London for a few months. I was like, "All right, cool." You know, we had a three-year-old, and it was you know, go to London. So we went. And my wife, we had a great time. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I got to get into this space. Like everybody's text messaging. Everyone's taking pictures. We didn't have any of this stuff in the United States. We went to Barcelona one weekend or something. And I remember sitting at a table, you know, uh, at, I think someone was watching our kid. It was like 11 of, you know, they eat dinner so late out there. It was like 12 o'clock at night. And a whole bunch of, you know, 20 somethings came in from work and they all had their phone and they all put their phone on the table and they all were texting each other and they all took pictures. And this seems like, of course, right? But no one was doing that in the United States. We, I don't think I had a camera on my phone back then. And I was like, oh, I got to get into this. And so yeah. I quit. I quit. And a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Glass, who I think Elliot, you talked to a couple times, uh, who's on our board here at Energy, he had a company, believe it or not, that was just starting in text messaging. And he was trying to do mobile marketing, like you walk by a restaurant and a coupon would pop up, you know, something nobody really wants. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't, he's like, come work with me. And I said, I don't like your model. And he's like, I don't either. Let's change. I got a bunch of money that I raised money and we got to figure something out. And I you know, was talking about my experiences there. And he's like, let's figure out how to build a real business here. Cause this is, we might be too early, but this is going to be big. And, did you did yeah. you have the confidence then? Like you'd you'd obviously started this one company before that had that had done well that you'd sold, but w did you have the confidence that you were going to be able to replicate that and do it again? Were you nervous no. at all? No, I never do. I always think I'm a fraud, right? I always wonder, like everybody knows more than me in every room I go into until I realize, oh, maybe I know more than they do. So then I'm then I'm like, hey, fun guy, you know. So no, not at all. And I had no idea. And Jeff, Jeff, I've known Jeff since college, and he was like, look, you're super creative. Help me figure this thing out. I'll give you no direct reports and you just do whatever you need to do and let's figure out a business model together. And if it doesn't work, you did something for a while. I was like, okay. And literally the second week I started, there was this massive conference that wasn't massive yet, but that was the first big year. It was called CTIA, which was like the Consumer Telephone Internet Association. And um, I went 
And there were people from all over the world, all over the place. And they were talking about messaging and text messaging and premium messaging and horoscopes and ringtones. And I was like, wow, we should do all that. How does that work? And they're like, well, you can't do it in the United States because the carriers are not connected. I remember I like, them selling ringtones yeah. over SMS. Dude, do you remember that? You used to like look text at my house. the number. This ringtones built this. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like, I remember those ads that come on TV. They're like, text yes. 1300. Yeah, text yes. 1300 crazy frog to get the crazy frog ringtone. And you'd be like, oh, oh my hold God. that. Elliot, you nailed it because crazy frog ended up buying my company. So this is what <laughs> happened. <laughs> This is what happened. It's a great business story. It's about being in the right place at the right time. And I came back and I said, yo, do we have carrier connections? And they're like, yeah, because we're doing messaging for free, but they're not connected. I was like, what if we connected all the carriers? And they're like, how do you do that? And it's called interoperability. Like if you're on Verizon and I was on Sprint, we couldn't be friends. I couldn't text you and say, hey, what's up? It just didn't exist then. So we started the mobile marketing association. Yeah, it didn't exist. And we helped regulate. We did the first short code. I think it was for Premier Magazine. It was vote on the Oscars. Who was going to win? It was 99 cents to vote and you could um, win something. Uh, a trip a trip to the Oscars or something. I remember that. And But what happened was I had to, to get it done. I had to go to Sprint and say, could you give me a short code? And they said, for this? And they said, sure, 5555. Great. And then I go to Verizon. They're like, oh, we don't have 5555. Five, five, five. We have 5545. Five. Okay, hold on. I'll go back to you know Sprint. Do you have 5545? Five, five, five? Yes. Okay. And then you go to Singular. Do you? And, it, and then at, at, at some point they realized there was real money here and they were willing to start an independent association to interoper create interoperability and so being really smart jeff glass who's one of the smartest dudes i ever met said okay we volunteer our guy to run this organization and we started the mobile marketing association which is a worldwide organization to set standards and practices to do this and it worked and it took off this business had no revenue in 2002 and i joined in 2000 three and we had five million in revenue all of it in december and 2004 we did actually that was 2004 in 2005 we did 85 million in revenue and we sold it in 2006 and the majority of the revenue came from premium content like ringtones horoscopes um uh baseball alerts we and i we were the only game in town man like we had every carrier connected and we were charging um, 10 cents for a message. They would charge a dollar. We'd take 10 cents, that type of thing. So it was the razor blades and, you know, and the razor. And we had, and then I got us onto a brand new show in the United States called American Idol. And we counted the votes for that, which was a disaster because we were like a 50 person startup. And it was, you know, everybody hated me in the startup. They were sleeping over every night and, you know, just like, screw you, man. You're like ruining my family life. And we kept going down and the votes weren't, weren't counted, right? It was a nightmare. But we looked up in a couple of years and we were like, wow, we have like a $180 million rev rate, you know, business. And the company that ended up buying us was they bought Crazy Frog, Jamdat at the same time. And they put all these businesses together to have a global media company based on mobile messaging. And they thought they were going to launch albums, which we did. We actually launched a Public Enemy album. And I'm very close friends with Flavor Flav and all those guys now because we literally launched, um, I believe the album was called... Uh, visualize world peas or something like that <laughs> but they launched it through ringtones because they were trying to do something different 
and um, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. And I'm like, I love the startup world now. This is amazing. I'm 100% hooked. And I went to go work for VeriSign, who bought our company. And after a month, I was like, I can't work for somebody. I can't do this. I got to do my own company again. So that's where the big company happened, where I kind of realized that everybody was putting all this this premium billing on their phone bill. Like you'd get your cell phone bill and it'd be 200 bucks because we were literally selling t-shirts and subscription, you name it. And it was like, whoa. And all of a sudden you're like 20. And I was like, well, you can't have a $200 phone bill without, you know, this is a credit card. This content needs to be free. It needs to be free. And so I started really one of the first mobile advertising networks in the world um, because they were barely getting off the ground on the wired web at the time. And that was Quattro Wireless. And Quattro was the company that you sold to Apple. Apple. And that was a lightning bolt because that was less than three years. And Steve literally called me up and said, you know, I didn't even believe it was him when he called. But got How does that conversation money. happen? When you say Steve called me up. Oh, it was crazy. Um, We've clarified Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> Steve Jobs. <laughs> The only Steve. The only Steve. The SJ. So there's a couple um, of Steves out there, but there's only one Steve Jobs. There is only one. He, um, I don't know how he got my number, but uh, myself and my co-founders of the company went to England to watch a Patriots game because you know how they do the play the game in London every year type of thing. So we're at Wembley Stadium and we had literally been drinking all day and watching the Patriots play football and trying to explain to a bunch of Brits like how this thing worked. And we were walking back and my phone rang and I picked it up and I'm like, what's this number? It's like California. My two co-owners, co-founders kept walking and I picked up the call and they're like, oh, this is a uh, corp dev from Apple. Uh, could you hold for Steve Jobs? And I was like, whatever, I'm up. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't believe this. What? Yeah, I mean, like, why? Like, Steve Jobs doesn't call it. I thought it was someone, you know, pranking me or some, you know, someone of our, you know, the guys back home who are jealous they didn't come in our little, you know, man case. So you hung up on Steve Jobs when you wanted to buy your company. I hung up on Dev first. And then they called back and, and I listened for a minute and I hung up again. And I was like, dude, leave me alone. I'm on vacation. Who is this? And then they called back again and I was like, okay. And it was a, a guy named Adrian Parica who is, he was his first like month on the job and he was the new head of corporate development <laughs> for Apple, you know, who everybody and their mother tries to kiss his ass because they all want, you know, him to buy his company. He's a wonderful guy. And he's like, hey, hey, don't hang up. Here's the story. I'm not gonna put you on the phone with Steve Jobs. Steve's back at work. Uh, and, and I was not a Steve Jobs fanboy. I know, I mean, Ishwar, my co-founder was insane fanboy, like just cried when he realized that he actually called us. And I didn't, I mean, I, of course I knew who Steve Jobs was, but I didn't study his life, his career. You know, I didn't even have an iPhone. I didn't, I had a Blackberry, I had a rim. And um, he said, look, we're really interested in buying your company. Steve's picked you out. He wants to buy you. Can you come here tomorrow and pitch the company? And I was like, no, I was like, I'm in London. He's like, so I was like, no. And I knew we needed time to prepare. You know, you can't just walk into Steve Jobs unprepared. I was like, can you give me a week? And they're like, oh really most people just come right away and i was like i need a week and they're like okay i'll see you in a week like this guy's hung up on me twice and is asking for a week they're really playing hard to get here i actually wonder if like super famous people like have that problem a lot you'd be like oh sure it's the rock calling and you'd be like yeah all right mate don't know what you're trying to sell me but i'm out of here and you're just trying to you're trying to have a chat with someone you know you're just trying to talk and they just keep hanging up on you I'll tell you something, they liked the fact that I was a little hard to get because they knew that this person was gonna to report to Steve if they did it. And they only wanted me to come 
uh, and I'll tell you the story of coming there because it's a great story. But for hours and hours and hours, we didn't get to meet Steve. All we got to meet was everybody else who had decided that they wanted us to work. And they just would grill me on, here's the story. When Steve stares at you, stare back. Don't fill, your, don't, don't fill it up with nonsense, you know, because he does this crazy thing I'll tell you about. You know, and you have to look like you, you care, but you don't care too much. And you have to look like you can take a lot of shit because Steve gives everybody shit. You have to look like somebody who's not going to sit there and cry. I want to go back to Boston. I was like, oh, okay. So this was a good start. So I like, oh my God. So I start running after the guys and I'm like, okay, dude, guess what? You're not going to believe this. First of all, please believe me because I don't want to go through this. No, you know, please. <laughs> but Steve Jobs just called and they're interested in buying Quancho. And they're like, yeah, fuck you. Now I'm like, no. And it took an hour. It took, I kept saying, I was like, what do I have to do? I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you my deepest, darkest secret. And I told them this secret. They're like, I think Andy's serious. I'm like, I'm totally serious. And then we stayed up all night. Like, what are we going to do? And we came home early, got everyone together, created all these uh, keynotes, not PowerPoints, of course, which was a total waste of time because Steve was never going to look at everything. We were prepared, ready to go. They only wanted to meet me and Ishwar. Ishwar was my, is a genius tech guy who, you know, co-founder uh, who, who created all the technology and, and me. And we flew out there. We spent the whole day getting prepared. And each was like, oh, we're at Apple. We're at the mothership. Did you know that first it was originally called this? And then this guy was, this guy got, got bought out for $4,000. I was like, oh, dude, don't, don't, just don't fanboy Steve Jobs. We're supposed to, you know, look him in the eye and not fanboy him and look like we belong at this table. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. Okay. So we go in there and we sit down and we're waiting and we're waiting. And Steve's really sick. Like he had just come back. And, you know, my images of Steve was a strong, you know, he was a big guy and he was an athlete and he'd rollerblade around town and never wears shoes. And, you know, he, uh, all these pictures of him as a picture of health and he finally walks in and my heart sank. I mean, he probably weighed 110 pounds and he had this green concoction and he looked horrible and he looked right at you. He goes, hello, I'm Steve Jobs. And I was like, Oh, I probably shouldn't touch him, right? Because, you know, he's not well and I don't want to hang. I was like, oh, uh, hi, I, I'm Andy. You know, and, you know, pointing to Ishwar. And Ishwar was like, uh, I was like, then this is Ishwar. And I look at him like, dude, you got to be fucking kidding me. You, we, we haven't even said a word yet. You can't open your mouth. Like, this is, you are never at a loss for words. So I'm like kicking him under the table. And he's like, oh, okay, great. He's like, you know, why don't we all just like spend some time here? So let's put our phones off and put them on the table. And I was like, okay, because I didn't own a BlackBerry. And I was literally getting on the plane and the, the chairman of our board, I did on an iPhone, right? I had a BlackBerry. Chairman of the board goes, uh, dude, Andy, are you going with your BlackBerry? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, you got to get, you got to go buy an iPhone. You got to, there's no way you can walk into Apple with a, you know, you're looking at an asshole. And I was like, I don't have one. My flight leaves an hour. He's like, I'm 40 minutes from the airport. Meet me outside. Meet me and I will give you my phone. And he gave me his phone right before I like, I literally had this random phone, you know? And, um, we go and we sit down and we start talking and he doesn't want to talk to me. He wants to talk to Ishwar first. I was like, okay. And he says, so your ads work on all different platforms, right? And Ishwar's like, yes, they do. They work on BlackBerry and we work on Android and we work on uh, Android, you know, and we can tell what's happening and we get data. And he's like, how do you do that? How do you make a beautiful ad work on a shitty, you know, BlackBerry phone? <laughs> and um, he was like, well, you know, we kind of dumb it down. And he's like, how would you work at Apple? He's like, well, we could dumb it down, you know, to like the lowest common denominator, not totally the lowest common, it can work on all platforms. And Steve looks at me, he's looking straight at me and he puts his hand like right in Ishwar's face. He's like, I'm not talking to him again today. Okay. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I've done 
everything in my life to be anything but the lowest common denominator. And you have the fucking nerve to come in here and tell me that you want me to buy your company and you're going to create a product that an Apple product that's the lowest common denominator. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know what we've done here? And he was like, oh, I, <laughs> I feel like nervous for you. Oh, you should be. I, uh, do, I, I, I don't know if there's any 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 crueler shutdown than if imagine like a guy who's like your role model just points at you and goes, I I am not talking to you ever again. Don't even look at me. You, what have you got to say? Didn't even look at him. He was I I was like, okay. And then he was like, Well, I didn't be Lois Connor. He was like, No, no, no more from you. Let's talk to Andy. So we talked and I'm looking at Ishra. I'm like, this is my moment in life. This is it. I am like putting for dough as they say right this if i don't pull this off it's not going to happen but if i pull it off this is uh, this is the greatest you know apple is the greatest company in the world Hmm. and we talked for a long time and i was un i mean i'm a pretty nervous guy i was unbelievably calm i just it just swept over me and i was like thinking of my kids and i was super coherent and we were locked in and we had a great conversation and he's like okay show me a demo and i said okay Ishwar is going to show you the demo. And he's like, okay, fine. And Ishwar looks at me. He's like, I was like, show him the demos. And but it's on a phone, right? So he had to get up and go and stand next to Steve and show him the demo. And he's like, I guess you don't, uh, you don't want to touch my phone because, you know, a jer- and I was like, Ishwar, just show him the demo. So he goes and he starts showing the demo like this, right? I wish I could get close. He's like this. And Steve's like, I, I can't see. Could you? You can get closer. It's okay. I'm not going to die on you. And Ishwar's like going like this. And, and Steve's like, I, I can't see the screen. You're in the way of the screen. And so Ishwar's like, oh, uh, uh, and he goes, just move your fucking fat fingers already. And he just grabs the phone from him. And Ishwar's <laughs> like, oh, oh, that was it. That was it. He goes back to sitting down for another like two hours of crying. It's like, it's just like, I can just imagine Steve being like, Ishwar, go sit in the corner and don't turn around until we're done here. Basically, and Ishwar's like, I-, I love you, man. He's, he goes, and says, just do this. I love you. I was like, okay. And so we talked for a long time. And Steve looks at me and he says, um, and the CFO of Apple's there. And I knew I had it. I knew we were good because he looked at me and goes, do you have any, you have any kids? And I said, I do. And, I, and he says, oh, your, your oldest son, does he have some disabilities or something? And I said, yeah, kind of. And he's like, well, tell me about that. He's like, you know, uh, I have this new thing called the iPad that's coming out. And I don't know, we've been testing it and it seems to be unbelievably, you know, resourceful. I mean, an unbelievable tool for kids with disabilities and autism. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was like, he's trying to be human with me, but he's not a guy. There's no niceties. There's no like, oh, you like the Red Sox. There's nothing, right? And there's no joking around. And he's under the clock, right? He knows his time is short and he's going to work fast. And so he, I said, yeah, I said, do you have any kids? Like I should have known, of course he has kids. And he's like, yeah. And he got super sad. And he was like, yeah, I do. My son, uh, he's applying to college. Uh, he wants to go to Stanford, but I, I, I don't know if he's going to get in. And I'm like, of course he's going to get in. You gave the commencement speech at Stanford. <laughs> like, your kids, your kids, you know, and, and the irony is I ended up buying a house. I live a block away from the jobs and, and his house. I didn't even know it. But uh, I felt like, okay, he's asking about my family. I'm talking about his family. We're connecting. Each one hasn't said a word. Here we go. And he looks at me. He goes, okay, uh, Peter, who's the CFO, how much am I buying Andy's shitty little company for? And uh, he says, well, we've agreed on uh, $315 million. And I was like, that's right, $315 million. And a uh, bargain for you. you know, I'm trying to make a joke with him. And he's like, yeah, I'm not paying that. I'm like, uh, what? Now I'm like, he's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Your company's not worth that. I was like, well, we had a deal. This is why I'm out here. He's like, I don't, I don't, we don't have a deal. I say we have a deal. 
Did I authorize <laughs> you, Peter, to, to sell, to, to, to buy, to spend $315 million in a shitty company from Boston? He's giving me the dumb Boston accent. He's like, you know what's in Boston? Uh, I was like, well, we're actually in Waltham. He says, oh, Waltham's this, you know, tech center. I was, and he goes, I know what Waltham is. I said, oh, it's actually pronounced Waltham. He's like, Waltham, Massachusetts. You know what's in Waltham, Massachusetts? Nothing. Zero. Everything you need in the world is right here in Cupertino. And if you're not here, you're nowhere. And that's why I'm not paying $315 million for your company. So now I'm thinking, and Ishwar is like crying. He's like, don't fuck this up. Take, take, take lower. And I'm like, ah. And, and I'm like, is this a test? Like, cause I'm the business, I'm not the tech guy, right? He's like, is he testing me to see if I'm gonna fold and be like, well, what'd you have in mind? You know, is this has gotta be a test. So I'm like, well, um, my board would be, you know, is not gonna go for that. He's like, I don't give a shit about your sticky little board, right? He's like, um, this isn't yeah. a test. He's like, I I'm not paying that amount of money. And he was like, I said, well, what did you have in mind? And he's like, how about 275? And I said, are you retrading the deal? I don't know if you know the term retrading, but it's not a good term. It's basically, you know, you get a Going deal. And that, word, yeah. You're trying to renegotiate something you've already agreed to. People don't like that word. I didn't really know what the word meant. <laughs> I just knew the word. And he's like, are you calling me a retrader? And I was like, um, but I, 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 I'm not too familiar with the word. I'll take it back. But I, <laughs> thought we had a, I thought we had a deal. And he's like, look, man, I don't have enough time. Look at me. I don't have time here to do this. I'll give you 275 for a shitty company. Oh, and by the way, and this was the killer line, you can go back and tell your board in Boston, excuse me, Waltham, that, oops, Andy's little ads don't work on the iPhone anymore. And then, then what is your fucking company worth? I was oh, like, wow. Oh, I love okay. that. Yeah. What a flex. And here's my guess. <laughs> The, the whatever that math is 30 40 million dollars to him was interest for the day on apple's billions of dollars in the bank right he probably didn't even care he wanted he's probably one of these guys who wanted to win at everything he did and also see how i did so he looks at me and goes can you land this plane and i go aye, aye captain and he goes you mixed metaphors there <laughs> i never <laughs> forgot it i was like right yeah i should have gone back to my my maritime law training with my vessel or whatever i was like uh yeah i can land this plane he's like go back to your little board and you got 24 hours and we'll get a deal done and i said okay uh, here's another thing and i was really smart and it didn't work and i'll just i'll give you some math on it at the time apple stock was at like 130 something that is before it split already 10 for one or whatever. Yeah. I said, how about you pay me that 275 in Apple stock? And he was like, how about no, no chance. I was like, okay. He's like, I'm going to give it to you all cash though. But because you were ballsy enough to ask, no strings attached. You know, a lot of deals when you get bought, they'll pay you some money up front and then there's yeah. an earn out or you have to stay yeah, yeah, for a yeah. number of years. Yeah, wow. And he, and he was like, shake my hand. And I was like, really? He was like, stuck his hand. I was like, shake my hand and tell me you're going to work, you know, work for me for a couple of years. That's all and everyone can get paid now and uh, make sure you just bring all the good people and leave the bozos back in Boston. And I was wow. like, okay. And uh, every year, like on the anniversary, which was about a month ago, the uh, founders of me, we get together and we do the math of what that 275 million would have been worth in Apple stock. And right now we figured it's about 4 billion. <laughs> 4 billion. Yeah, yeah, 2020 hindsight sucks, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, he didn't offer it. Yeah. And how's how's your how was your co-founder after that day? Did you guys like celebrate and go get a drink? Did he need to like decompress for two weeks and get a we, therapist? He didn't <laughs> say a word. We get back in the rental car, 
and we start he hadn't said a word i was like you you, you good ishwar and he's like pull over please and he gives me the biggest hug i've ever had in my life he's like I didn't think you, I, honestly, I love you like a brother. We've been through the war, but I didn't think you had that in you. And I'm like, I didn't either, man. I don't know where it came from, but that was like the best performance of my life. And he's like, thank God, man. Let's just, like, let's just get this thing yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. And so then beyond that, you then obviously worked under Steve for a couple years. Yeah. Just sort of as much as you can summarize what I'm sure was a huge experience in your life. Like, what was that like? What was it like learning from him? What What are the leadership lessons you take from him or or don't take from him? Yeah, it was terrifying. Not going to lie. I mean, I loved it, but I hated it. I was a jerk. He was very hard guy to work for, but it was it was terrifying and incredibly stressful. And we would get there and they had never really bought a company of our size before, believe it or not, because Apple was, a you know, in, not everything was in-house, not in-house. Like they wouldn't work with outside groups. Everything was in Cupertino pretty much in Paris. Mm -hmm. But um, and all of a sudden here's, you know, I had 120 people and we're coming a bunch of us and a bunch of us are coming for six months before the fall because a lot of people had kids in school and they had to move and they didn't even have an office for us. I was literally in a lockdown room, which is a blackout room with curtains and picnic tables where they, you know, the secret stuff is. And I sat in a picnic table for six months and uh, it was tough. And I met with Steve every Tuesday for a long time, but never alone because he would never meet alone. And it was half of the executive staff there. And it was my meeting and I hated every minute of it. I hated every minute of preparing for that meeting. It was a lot of reasons why I didn't like to be a lawyer because I was so paranoid and I didn't feel like I knew what I was talking about. And I overprepare. But with Steve, you had to simplify everything down to its core. And the biggest lesson is the most obvious one for Apple, like their products, their mantra, the way they talk, the way they get things done is just the word simplify. If you go outside of the Marcom building, there's a little like, installation and, it, and it's a someone some artist made it. it says simplify crossed out simplify crossed out simplify and that's it and that's the way they work like steve there's no focus groups there's no research there's nothing there's a bunch of guys that meet every monday for senior staff tim cook probably still does the same thing and they talk and steve allows you into his room his conference room starts at like eight in the morning and ends like when like a springsteen concert whenever he's done with it and you have to be he has to trust you that you're bringing the most boiled down, accurate, truthful information. And he doesn't suffer fools. And if you don't, you're out. He'll kick you out of the room like a child or he'll just fire you. And there's a reason why this company is the greatest company on earth. And if you look at the executive staff, they've, I think like the, 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 the newest guy has been there for 15 years. You know, they've been there for 15, 20, 30 years through mm. all these changes of computer, you know, computer processing and the internet and everything. And they're still on top. And uh, I learned to, he would always say, Andy, you're a very complicated man, which which wasn't a compliment, right? It was just like, you use 10 words when you could use one words. You try and show me keynotes when you're trying to frame my thoughts. I don't wanna see your pictures. I don't wanna read your words, right? Just boil this down and tell me what you're thinking and think like an Apple person, right? I, 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 I worry about you because I bought you, I didn't hire you and I need to train you. And then you need to go train all your guys because Steve is the greatest multitasker in the world because he was the world's greatest salesman. He was amazing with design, amazing with numbers. He could do everything, right? And if you do that, you have to be able to take in information from others. Others can't give you crap and then you have to synthesize it. And that mm -hmm. was my problem. 
I would work with my guys every week and I, and they would be like, get this. And they kept saying, well, just tell Steve, just tell Steve, just tell Steve. And I said, I blew up in front of like 20 people. I was like, if anyone ever says, just tell Steve to me again, I'm going to fire them. Why don't you fucking tell Steve? Because it's terrifying to just tell Steve. It doesn't work that way. You need to think through every angle of what you're saying. And if he finds out that you're fudging it or you're lying or you don't know where you're bullshitting yourself, you're all gone. And I'm the first one to go. And But when I was in there with him and everybody else, I was like, I am here with leaders of the free world, man. This is amazing. And then after I left, I was like, shoot, I have six hours, six days and four hours left for the next one. I got to prepare. How, how is that balance? Because the way you talk about it, it's like there was clearly this desire from you and all the people around him to want to impress him. Like you wanted to do a good job, but you were also seemingly partially terrified of him. Like how how did that tension work, or how do you feel like he had so much loyalty when he perhaps uh, wasn't an easy person to work no, with? Because he created the pirate culture, the pirate flag, you know, the Mac pirate flag, and everybody he hated that, but he kind of liked it because he knew every day, thousands of times a day, someone would say WWSD. What would Steve do here? And every little detail. You know, like there's the bookstore and mm. there's the bookstore app in this, right? And if you look at it, what, there's a bookshelf and it's a semi, it's a wood grain bookshelf. Well, I know the story, like some dude brought him hundred different grains of wood till he decided which one was the right one to copy for the digital version of that bookshelf because every detail mattered. And you had to think like that or you were gone. And if you did and you survived, then you felt like my shit doesn't stink. I am, I am the I am amazing. These are amazing people. We can do absolutely anything. He he made that happen. You would go in and he'd say, he didn't want to talk usually to the VP or the person who was in charge. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. He'd want to talk to the person who made it. He wanted to talk to the graphics designer, the engineer, the person who came up with it. And so you would have to bring your lower level people in there and they'd be terrified because if Steve hated them, he'd probably get fired. But if Steve liked them, they'd be like, you're amazing. How long would this take to make into a product? And you'd say, we really hustled maybe eight months. And he'd say, I want to do this. And the guy would be like, oh my God, my idol just said he wants to do my product. I'll give you eight weeks. And you'd be uh, I can't do this in eight months, in eight weeks. You have eight, you have eight weeks. Goodbye. And then you'd go back and you'd ring the bell and every single person in the group would come and sit down. You'd be like, we have eight weeks. If we all stay over for eight straight weeks and we do this in shifts and we have this room, like, how do we do this? And it became a game, you know, like you just were amazed at what you could accomplish. Apple keeps doing it. And do you, wow. do you think he was right with that mantra and that like mentality of simplify? There's like a lot can... of burnout. Oh, yeah. simplify for sure, for sure. Yeah. Like, what's the what's the first thing you noticed when you got an iPad? You could you you were old enough to appreciate the iPad yeah. when it came out, right? What was the first thing you noticed when you looked in that box? What was missing from that box? A keyboard. Directions. No di- <laughs> keyboard. No. Directions. There was no. Yeah. Have you ever bought a thousand dollar product without a piece of paper in there that said anything about even? Yeah. Nothing. 
nothing. Yeah. It was so intuitive that a three-year-old could pick it up and plow through it. And that's once you felt like I'm part of this revolution, you wanted to do anything to stay there. And it was hard to get a job there and they paid great and they took great care of you and they, just, they made you feel like a superhero. Now you gave your life to him and, and a lot of people couldn't deal with that. And um, also he, he was ruthless, you know, and would either cut you or not. Uh, but he created a, a business where he hated the fact that there was a hundred thousand people working there. Cause he tried to run it like a 30 person startup and anybody, uh, as jobs at apple.com, he would respond to your email. He would call you up. He would get on fights with people who sent them notice, notice, you know, emails about why'd you move this button over here? Cause that's just the guy he was. Insane what do you feel like, that. what do you feel like? from working with Steve that you've developed into your own leadership style now? So, um, you know, for my leadership skills, it was definitely a sense of urgency. You know, I'm also from Boston and it's kind of a cliche, but we're like hard charging and I'm out here in California and everyone's like, hey, you know, a little more mellow, but I'm not. Uh, fierce loyalty, he was insanely loyal so much about simplification like i'm the best multitasker i know and that kills me because other people aren't and i'm like come on you know so i'm a bit impatient but um and and definitely you know fell fast which is not his that's uh, mark zuckerberg but it's big and it's the mantra out here in the valley where i don't know like in the startup scene in sydney or in boston it was a it was a badge of dishonor to start a company and fail it's like oh, yeah. oh you're the guy who took the money and you're the one who lost it all here it's like oh i've, I've had three startups i did this i did this i did the first one was the the second one i got this big third one we, we partnered with these and people are like oh look at all the experience you have as opposed to oh you're a three-time loser so it's do something if it works keep doing it and grow always grow steve is an unbelievable listener um you know like he had his opinions right and he didn't care about anybody else's but he listened to everybody and the mere fact that they were able to grow and grow and change and evolve and go from a you know a piece a computer a, 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 a computer company to a music company to a phone company to you know an internet company to a media company is miraculous all yeah. all with maintaining and then becoming the most valuable company in the world very crazy story yeah what yeah what a unique experience and then after your time at apple how did you then i mean moving forward to now where you are it seems like quite a leap to go from where you were to now running an esports org like yeah how did that come about well I could never get back that juice of being in a startup really. And I could never get back the fear of every morning waking up and being fearful of Steve, which seems a horrible thing, but also an incredible motivation to wake up and do something great every day. And if you want to do something great every day, uh, I, I had some money now. I didn't want to just downshift as a 40 year old into doing nothing, you know? So, uh, I got back to what I'm passionate about, which is sports. And I bought a minor league baseball team for the Colorado Rockies out here in California. I loved it. And then I helped put a group together to buy, uh, the Sacramento Kings, uh, the NBA. And, uh, I love that. And I was like, I want to run the Kings, which wasn't going to happen. Uh, but I, I started to think about gaming in 2015, uh, with my partner, Mark Masteroff, who's a co-owner of the Kings, but also the founder of 24 hour fitness and Shaquille O'Neal, who's our business partner in a few things. And Shaq loved gaming and he's made some of the worst games ever, like, you know, whatever he made Shazam or whatever that thing was. Uh, but, um, I started to watch my boys, who's Henry, who you saw earlier, and Sam, and 
there gaming was the great equalizer like sam's a tiny little adorable theater nerd and he would just crush these you know mark's kids are all division one nordic blonde gods and but they would play together and sam was like the man and it was great i was like oh what a great thing it is you know to put on the headset and make friends and be an equalizer as much as we talk about how toxic gaming is and everything like imagine if we didn't have the world we have right now living in this pandemic i mean it's it's a way of of, is this connection and i think it's wonderful so i i started following uh soda pop and on twitch who ended up you know also being a co-owner with us here at energy little known fact and um I was like, this is great. And Mark said, hey, we, we get sports. We should we should start a team. And Shaq's like, let's go buy a team. So we went and got into League of Legends in the NA, NA uh, in the LCS there. And we made like every mistake you could make. Every mistake. And we got relegated. And uh, we were the last ones to get relegated before franchising. And this will lead into why we did Overwatch, Elliot, I guess. Um, and uh, we said, should we just call it a day here? We just lost some money. It was tiring. And they're like, no, let's keep going. This is great. But let's get into lots of games. So like, okay. But then it wasn't a hobby anymore. And then I started to having to run it. And I was raising money. And we had a Rocket League team. We had a Counter-Strike team. We had a Smite team that won the World Championship. And we had a super fun Overwatch League team with seagull and hard blue and all the, the meme team all those guys and it was a blast and i'm also i'm also come about. yeah i'm also yeah. curious in those early days like did you guys have any were, were you just kind of seeing what the big esports teams were doing and emulating them or did you have a yes this is how we're going to differentiate as energy or did you kind of feel like you didn't quite have that understanding of the space yet so it was more just you have the funding you have like some good people behind you and you're just going to try and kind of really just fill the space in a similar way to what other teams are doing yeah it started great companies somewhat start this way but in this case probably not (laughs) in that it was a hobby right so there wasn't a big vision it was like let's just have some fun i mean it was not super expensive like it is now and it was fun and my kids liked it and we had a great time and i was learning and i was learning and i was learning and that's like just like steve like i was i was even you know when i met you guys i was just like a sponge because you've accomplished so much and it was such a different world from the you know the competitive side and i was following you know emulating teams like tsm and cloud nine yeah and um i I was like oh i gotta be like them and then after a while we started winning we got we became competitively very successful we won the smite world championship you know eventually won the overwatch we won the rock league world championship and i was like i don't want to be anything like tsm i don't even like those guys (laughs) Uh, this is not that's not the vibe i want at all here right and um i saw reached out to you and i saw what you guys were doing and you guys were making people happy and people wanted to spend time with you right it was like this is my this is part of my I'm going to remember when I'm in middle school or high school remember when we used to go home and watch Muzel videos and t- that's what they're going to talk about when they're in college and when they're when they're older they're probably not going to say hey remember when the shock won the 2019 Overwatch League championship and it's still very important but I just realized gaming is massive and esports is a cool core that gets probably too much of attention but the culture and the content around gaming is way bigger yeah, so I just wanted to, to touch on that for a second yeah. because I feel like some of our listeners probably um, won't know how our relationship all got started, but Andy and the energy team were completely integral in the start of the Click House and the Click Channel. It wouldn't be here if it wasn't, it wouldn't be what it was if it wasn't for Andy. And um, Andy reached out to Elliot probably just over two years ago now, right? 
And I guess you'd seen, I mean, from your perspective, I'd love to like know how that happened for you, what your thought process was around esports versus content, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I, I fully yeah. forget. I fully forget. Was it Brett who first reached out, right? And then. Mm -hmm. I think you guys met first, but I reached out to you and you said you were going to be at uh, E3 or something. Yeah, and yeah. And then met. I met with Brett yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. Well, I can tell you how I discovered Elliot. I was at a uh, baseball barbecue for my son Henry's baseball team. And Henry was a hell of a ball player. And he quit. He doesn't play anymore, which pisses me off. But, um, and this was, he made like one of those traveling high powered teams, you know, and these are all alpha males and they're all big players. And now they're juniors in high school and they're probably going to, you know, be division one players. And they were all talking about Fortnite and they weren't talking about baseball or the Red Sox. And when they were at these tournaments all day long when the parents were sitting there watching, all they could talk about was Fortnite and they were talking about you. And I was like, what is a moosel, moose, moose elk? And they're like, no, no, dad, it's moose elk. And I was like, okay. And I started watching you. I'm like, oh, this dude's funny as hell. I like this. And I said, I got to try and reach out to him. And that was it. That was it. And, I, and then I saw what you were, you know, putting together with, you know, laser and, and, and all the other guys. Yeah. And my man, Cray. And I was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And um, just wanted to get be a part of it and learn from you guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it I thought it was really cool. I, I think that it's definitely the direction that I think a lot of esports teams, especially the really big successful ones going these days, where they actually are blending a bit more of uh, kind of like influencer partnership with their teams as a whole, like bringing on YouTubers and Twitch streamers who might not, aren't necessarily the competitive players of the group, but ones who, you know, kind of build that brand. I, I think that's where I've noticed really big esports teams can kind of, I don't know what your thoughts on this, have like a, a slightly different from like big sports teams because they're almost mm -hmm. more a brand or a, or a culture group, a culture group that is a brand, if that makes sense. When I look at all the like really, really big guys and I think who in terms of following and size are the large, say, I think one's like FaZe and 100 Thieves and, and obviously you guys because there's that, there's that mixture where it's the... Um, you have the 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 competition and the and the players that everyone rallies around and like watches but then you've also got the the youtubers and the twitch streamers who are like hey guys like you know my my team energy like they they're doing this huge like overwatch league finals this weekend yeah. it's going to be huge i'm going to be live streaming myself like watching and supporting them like get in yeah. here and like and it kind of gives everyone something to like rally around it gives you something to to build that brand on yeah it's a piece Right, like literally, I, Brett would tell you that's Brett Lautenbach, our president. Within two weeks of working with you guys, I said I don't want to be the Dallas Cowboys of esports. I don't want to be the best esports team in the world. I don't care. I care. I want to win because I'm super competitive, but that's not going to build us a really big company here. It's it's and this isn't a hobby anymore. I want to build a media company, and we, you have to pick. And he was like, "What do you mean you have to pick?" I was like, You're, "You'll see. Everyone's going to pick because you can't just build a business being the San Francisco Shock of the Overwatch League. Here, come sponsors, give me money, and I'm going to build a big business that's going to be meaningful for these investors because it costs a lot of money to do this now. You have to build a real company, and you see like TSM has their uh, I'll give them credit like the uh, andy didn't create this great business with their guides and their blitz app which like analyzes your play and it's a subscription business and cloud nine is now a tournament uh, organized they run um flashpoint the counter-strike league yeah. and you have investors like immortals or aeg about, about events and everyone's doing something a little different 
And our angle, especially after we, you know, merged up with uh, Optic and Hector Rodriguez, you know, who's a content guru, uh, this is where we wanted to be. Much more sort of the media company and put a bunch of pieces in place. And esports is a great core. And we have awesome fans and energy does really well. And the Huntsman's the most popular Call of Duty team in the world by a long shot. And shock, you know, when the Overwatch League and it's all great. But with our announcement we were talking earlier, we picked up Click. Clicks, uh, um, you guys should have picked them up. Would have worked with your name a lot better there. But uh, fortunately, we got them. And, um, and and to go with Benji Fishy, one of the biggest Fortnite streamers in the world, and Unknown Army, another massive one, and Zade and Edgy and Epic Wear. Like, we have the most ridiculous crack squad of all time. And now we have Clicks, and we, we're not done. Because the amount of energy, no pun intended, the amount of engagement we get now, the content that we're starting to create, the umbrella effect that it has, you know, maybe I'm a kid and I'm 15 years old and I come in and I'm super excited about Fortnite, but then I discover Warzone and then I discover Scump and in, in Modern Warfare and the Call of Duty League and I'm getting older now and we, we have a Gen Z brand and we have a millennial brand yeah. and it's just really about content and media and, you know, you probably saw that our name was thrown in for getting a franchise in the LCK in South Korea, like, like we're looking to be more of a global, a global thing and, and, yeah. and bringing in folks like you have. So, I, I mean, I, I know, I know for me personally, I think most people watching know that I used to have like a, you know, I used to do mainly Overwatch content. And I think one of the most interesting things for me uh, when I was going through that phase was them starting the Overwatch League. And, um, you know, like I, I knew Nate relatively well, who was the commissioner of it and had mm -hmm. some really good chats to him about it. But I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to get your kind of like the, the thought process behind getting an Overwatch League team, because for those people who, who are watching who don't know, essentially... Um, and correct me if there's any parts here, key parts you think I'm missing out, Andy. They, sure. Overwatch, I, I think intelligently, they wanted to create a really proper formalized league. Different games do it differently. Counter-Strike uh, made by Valve tends to be kind of like, hey, here's our IP, do whatever good you want with you. it. Yeah, yeah, good luck with it to an extent. Whereas <laughs> Overwatch uh, and a lot of other games like League of Legends are very hands-on with their esports. Like this is, we are creating a league. You can submit to put a team into our league. They organize the competitions they do everything and overwatch did that i would probably say to a almost a larger degree than anyone else has ever done before where they really basically tried to make what was like an nba or a, exactly. or a nrl or, or whatever it is like a traditional sports league but for esports but where people buy the franchises and i think initially obviously the number was never like formally announced but i believe the first round of teams were selling for anywhere between 10 and 15 million and 20 then, million 20, 20 million, million buy-in mm -hmm. right and then the the more recent round where they added a bunch of extra teams were done at like 30 million right or it was yeah, it around, was yeah they were it was it was yeah. more yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. but yeah essentially you're buying the rights to own one of these teams for 20 million dollars and then yeah. on top of that you have to be paying to obviously pay the players salaries any staff you want to put behind it upkeep costs like it's a lot of money long story short it is huge amounts of money um so yeah I, i'm just obviously that is an insane commitment because most most orgs when they buy a team the core cost they're looking at is i mean i'm you know when you're talking about your fortnite guys it's really like what salary are they on obviously you've got a lot of logistical things around that that you have to pay for but there's no huge upfront franchise cost yeah. um yeah, yeah. so yeah I, i'm i'm super curious like you're you're like initially when you were like looking at the overwatch league when that opportunity came up what did what did you guys see as the the real opportunity there yeah so 
this is an interesting one because I've done it twice, really, with the Call of Duty League as well, which was even more yeah. money on some level, but a whole different thing because I was going in with Hector and the greatest, you know, history in Call of Duty, and I knew we'd be the most popular team in a second. Um, and that was the motivation actually for Overwatch, believe it or not, which was we had a great team. We had a fun team. We energy was kind of known for overwatch at the time. The game was banging, right? It was a good time. And if I didn't do it, I was like, Oh, what do I have? That was one question. So it was kind of mm -hmm. FOMO. And then the second question was, well, people say, why didn't you go back? And cause they were franchising for league of legends. And even though you got relegated, they liked you. And they did ask us to apply. And I thought about TSM again. And I thought about Cloud9 and I said, I can, we're, we are never going to be as popular as TSM and Cloud9 will be in, in League of Legends. And CLG was popular back then and Liquid is popular and they had years of experience and they had, their whole brand was League of Legends. And our brand was, you know, Overwatch and, and Rocket League and Counter-Strike. So I said, yeah. I want to go into a place where there's nothing and, and, and zero and I could build the brand and I could build a champion and we could be the most popular team. And that was really, and then I love the idea that it was not the wild west and you know, our counter-strike days, we'd have everybody calling, stealing our guys and poaching. And it was, there was no yeah, commissioners and, and Nate, Nate Nanzer was a big selling point. He was great. And we don't have territory. So we owned, we own, we do own Northern California for Overwatch yeah. League for anything Overwatch. And um, there was the idea of like doing what we do in the NBA and having home matches was pretty pretty interesting yeah i mean i mean i guess yeah i can i can totally understand that perspective for you guys like overwatch was your your biggest thing and when they mm -hmm. announced the overwatch league it was kind of like the, the the position you're put in is almost like either cough up 20 million and buy yeah. a team or get or the die hell out of our game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. but literally it's like it's like you either get a you either buy a team or you get out of overwatch and you need to go somewhere else and that's like yep. a that it's kind of like I, I, it's not like I don't want to say like blackmail, but it is like it's a bit of like an arm twist where you're like, it look, was. we love the game, but like you know, twenty millions a lot, and you kind of you have to decide one way or another. Yeah. Um, yeah. So okay, so I wanted to get your thoughts here because this was something um, as a content creator that really blew my mind uh, in terms of the way that Blizzard dealt with the Overwatch League. I think that, because um, I remember you and I had some good chats actually about the Call of Duty League when you were initially looking at that. Mm -hmm. And I think I was, I because I've always been a little bit weird on the Overwatch League, but I think Call of Duty, one of the big things where I was always like, I actually think that could be good is because they they release a new one every year, you know, or every two years, yep. you know, they're, yep. they're so good at keeping that game like new, fresh, fresh. it's always there. Yep. Call of Duty, you know, it's the first game I bought when I got an Xbox 360, you know, 12 years ago. And it's a game that I literally played yesterday today um but the thing that always amazed me about the overwatch league is they had you know say 10 20 teams coming in doing these 20 to 30 million dollar buy-ins literally half a billion dollars almost behind this thing yeah and for me when it comes to keeping a like i for me i think the core of keeping an esport relevant is you need to keep the game relevant you know you can't mm -hmm. put the esports before the core game because you know it's the old putting the cart before the horse you need you need people to be actively interested in the game itself if they're going to take that next step to actually watch it at its highest competitive level. Um, and what amazed me about Overwatch was how little work and how little effort they put into actually maintaining the game, which obviously <laughs> I think... But but no but but genuinely as a content creator I because uh, you know you see uh, like and I'm not saying that I don't think they worked hard I know a lot of the guys who are developers oh, no, on that I'm team with you. you know I'm with it. Keep incredible going. yeah yeah, yeah. In incredible incredible team but I think it's yeah. a it's a um 
like partially i i don't think they did work on as hard on it as they could have in terms of just blizzard not putting the resources but also that perfectionist element means that they will not release something unless they've airbrushed every pixel whereas epic you know like downside sure there's a new glitch in the game every couple of weeks but man they're just like and we got this weapon and we changed this poi and this and this and this and kids are coming back every single week because like oh my god now i can now the water levels dropped and this new area is here um and and for me it just seemed crazy that uh for the two years after overwatch launched they other than adding two to three new heroes a year they did not update the game the events that they had were fully recycled from what they did the previous year every part of the game was just a a recycle of the updates they'd done last year and i think that you saw a huge drop off in content creators because of that because they were like we can't keep making content on the same 6v6 after a while it just gets boring you then had a huge dip from play account because you no longer have um you know influencers driving to it as well as the fact that players were the same they were kind of getting a bit bored of nothing changing and then I think from that, you also had a, a bit of a, uh, obviously that wouldn't, that wouldn't affect back on the Overwatch League very well. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just curious, like what you thought of, I, I actually think the Overwatch League itself was run really well from what I could see from the outside. I think mm-hmm. minor things around the way that they posted video content, I had different thoughts on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in terms of like the production value behind it all, I thought they did well. But I, I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts on how Blizzard actually you know, dealt with, uh, you know, keeping the game relevant and keeping through that, I guess, the following for the league. Yeah. Well, I think you should be commissioner of the Overwatch League because I think <laughs> <laughs> we'd be doing much better. Uh, I think you nailed it. Like the game, it, it, the central issue with the Call of Duty League, well, any league, League of Legends, you name it, is that for the NBA, the NBA does not own the game, right? Mm. Commissioner Silver, the greatest commissioner, works for the owners of the NBA, and the game of basketball is a game that everyone plays and anyone can play. The mm. commissioner of the Overwatch League works for Bobby Kotek. He doesn't work for us as owners, even though we put the money in, and he's at the mercy of the game developers and the business of Blizzard Activision. And that's a hard place to be. And we've not ever really figured out that sort of yin and yang with owners um, because we don't own the game. We can't say, hey, you know what? You got to put a shock storefront in here because we haven't changed skins in two years. Or uh, what's up with the development cycle here, guys? Hello. You know, we don't have any say in that. And um, we're getting better at that with a relationship because I think it was very, very one-sided and it's getting better. But I think the Overwatch League, you know, we're waiting for Overwatch 2. You nailed it, right? We're waiting for yeah. Overwatch 2. They've been trying to do a bunch of different things with hero bands and other fun stuff. And it's it's fun, but you have a very hardcore audience. And it's amazing. Like this audience, this, if you watch during the day, it doesn't even fluctuate much at all with viewership. You know, like when the Huntsmen go to play in a Call of Duty match, it literally goes up 50, 75, 100%. When the Shock play, we're one of the most popular teams, it doesn't go up at all. It's just the same it's because people like Overwatch. They like to watch the game. That's it. So we have a long way to go there. And it's a problem when you've paid a huge amount of money that you're dependent on a game. And this game hasn't proved itself out like Counter-Strike or League or Dota to be something that's going to be here for a long time. So. Yeah, I was yeah, cuz I guess that's the that's the real the core difference is, you know, with a if you buy a baseball team, you can be pretty damn sure that in 50 years from now, baseball is going to be pretty much the same game. 
and yeah. people are still going to want to play it because it's baseball. It's just a mm-hmm. it's it's a classic sport. It yeah. is what it is. But but games tend to have that. That's what I always found so crazy when they were able to sell these teams for that much is because yeah. games generally have a a life cycle. Life cycle. You're right. Unless you hit one of the the crazy lucky ones like uh, a League of Legends or a Dota. But even I would say Counter Strike has almost hit a bit of a life cycle issue at the stage where it's at now. Um, but yeah, is that unless you're doing stuff like what Call of Duty does, which is to, yeah. number one, dominate the genre by being head and shoulders above everyone else and then manage to keep on pushing out a new one every single year so it is entirely fresh. Um, yeah, it's it's really hard to kind of maintain your, your player base and through that, maintain an interest in the esports for that game. But um, yeah, no, no, it's... So, so I, I'm curious, 2020 hindsight would you would you do you reckon do the overwatch league again or would you probably just more stick to call of duty league if it was now when i didn't have and i have you know energy which is in the last year become amazing and we have huntsman i would probably not do it not to make headlines but only because there's a lot of money to be spent now in two places at the same time, Call of Duty and Overwatch, right? And they're yeah. both going through growing pains and they're both trying to figure it out. And if I had to bet on something, because I have this incredibly unique position where we are, you know, dominant skin sales, dominant attendance, dominant viewership, yeah. we have Hector, we have Scump, there's a history and the game is fresh. And it's in the United States, at least it's cultural phenomenon. Like I can tell you most of the players on my bat, on the Kings, they call up, they're like, Hey, you think I can get in like a war zone thing with formal and Scump like every day, <laughs> you know, because they yeah. all, they all play it, you know, they're not calling up mostly and saying, can I play overwatch with, you know, Sinatra. Um, yeah. So, um, and we've seen, you know, with the, the game, there's, we're waiting. It's a bet right now. It's a bet to figure out the right model, figure out how to survive in this pandemic without events. Because actually, the events for Overwatch sold really well, and they were fun. Yeah. If you saw the few that they did, there was a good time, yeah. right? People liked it. We sold four thousand tickets for two events, real pretty well, pretty quickly. Mm. And um, so there's a business there. There's a fan base there. Was it worth twenty million right away? I don't know. I think that was probably a bit piggish. <laughs> Same with Call of Duty, yeah. which was more. But um, I don't like betting and waiting. You know that. I, I, no, if you're I, asking me, right? I'm, I'm going to bet that this game comes back to where it was. I don't know. That's a weird bet. Yeah, but I love I think, the game. I, think it's, I love it. Yeah, I love. I love Overwatch. I still go back and I play it every few weeks. It's a I great esport too. Yeah, and 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 Blizzard's a great developer. I just think mm-hmm. that I, I think Blizzard needs to uh, fundamentally like revisit some things in their like core ethos about you know the like where they exist in this like the games industry of 2020 i think that the like what they did uh you know in the early in the 2000s 2010 coming up to you know pretty much like when overwatch got released that Mm -hmm. is why they are so well respected and such a force in the gaming industry today which is they would refine 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 put out the most polished beautiful products in the world yeah. and 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 that was absolutely what yeah, the made them gorgeous. so stand out 100 yeah. percent. but i think that uh these days just you know once again everyone's got a bit of game adhd you know yep, they, they need you like they knew they the yeah. fresh and i and i think that you you really need to sometimes you know perfection isn't everything and i think if you need to lop off 10% of your quality to then triple your output in terms of what you can really get into the game, getting more content in there, keeping it more engaging. 
I think that that's a trade-off that I think Blizzard is really struggling to get to, but I also think it's one that will ultimately make Overwatch and through that the Overwatch League way more successful. Well, yeah. I feel like it kind of goes back to what Andy was saying before, where it's like, don't be afraid to try things and fail fast. And I feel mm -hmm. like yeah. that was something that even through our experience of working with you, Andy, through the ClickHouse was something that like I took away and have tried to keep over the last couple of years because I think like Elliot would attest that I'm typically out of the two of us, the slightly more reserved one, or I'm more like Elliot, Elliot has this mentality. He's just like, just do it, Grace, just do it. He's like, hire someone, spend the money. He's like, do what you need to do. Like, just try it. And I'm always more like, oh, can we afford it? What's the budget? Is it going to be worth it? Let me think about it for a week. But yeah. I remember, I think like one of the things that I took from you, you were, you were very action oriented, very like, just go for it, do it and try it. Yeah. And if it works great and if it doesn't move on to the next thing quickly. And I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you nailed it. Like that's both of what you both said is that the combination of Blizzard not having that culture, Activision having the, that culture, but different business. And then the Fortnite mm. effect, you know, here comes Epic built on an engine where they can, you know, quickly make changes and Blizzard looks like the Titanic and it takes four years to turn it around. And yeah. that's the problem we're in right now. I remember as a content creator, when they recycled the same event for the first time, I was like, oh, you know, maybe they're like a bit under the pump, like it'll be all changed. And then it was like the next year and the next year. And then maybe they, they put in like one like little new event or like a tweak to an existing one. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, like I, I just, I, and I remember I had a lot of friends who worked on the team and I was like, and I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like, Matt, bro, like be real with me. Like, what are you guys doing? And he's like, oh, you know, like we're doing like doing a lot of stuff right now. And I was like, and I was like, all right, like, all right, like, you know, and they and they came out with uh, you know, the the origin story stuff, you know, the the more like campaign style gameplay, which ultimately was really just a, a kind of beta test, obviously, for what they're doing with Overwatch 2, um, yeah. with the campaign there. But but for me, single player stuff is I, I don't think it's what Overwatch needs to get that longevity. I think it'll give a good injection when it first releases. You'll get a few people back into the game. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, people don't play campaigns a hundred times over. They play multiplayer a thousand times over. So mm -hmm. people will play a campaign once. You'll get you'll get that spotlight back on the game. But then Overwatch needs to sell itself. Overwatch needs to be like, like you should come back. We're going to make it interesting. We're going to make it continually engaging. Here's how we're going to do it. I don't know what the best way to go about that is, but I but I think it's going to be. I, I think with the release of Overwatch Two, I'm hoping they can make some changes that will kind of keep the game competitive by not messing with it too much and making it too like wacky and crazy. But right. I do think they need something that will you know really just keep people wanting to come back and play that six v six loop over and over and over again because it's a great gameplay loop. But yep. any loop after long enough gets a little bit exhausting. 100% agree. It's a beautiful game. We have no idea, you know, anything about Overwatch 2 or when it's coming out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, Andy, yeah. Andy, taking it back a notch, when you look at the org landscape, you look at the gaming landscape in general at the moment, who do you think's doing really well? Where do you think people are going right and wrong? And what are you, mm -hmm. what are your predictions for the rest of the year and the year to come? Okay. Well, if Hector was sitting next to me, he would say, don't answer that question because he hates it when I compare because <laughs> I always compare all the time. Well, that's um, a question that I wanted to have in general is it's like, 
are you looking at what other people are doing? Do you think yeah. it's good to compare? Do you think it's good to stay I in your do. own lane? I yeah. do. You, Steve Jobs built his business. Uh, uh, you needed an enemy. IBM was the enemy, right? Like you need an enemy. Like I can kid around with TSM and I'll blah, blah, blah. But you know, I don't want to get a million TSM fans to hit me up. But like, okay, they're our enemy. Screw them. You know, trying to steal my players. To, <laughs> like, the content sucks, whatever, right? I don't know. But you got to have an enemy. So I don't even look at them, honestly. Um, I look at, I, I feel like we're in the genre of just, uh, of two others, but different. And Hector's, we look at FaZe and 100 Thieves. And, um, but Hector doesn't want to do that. Just like Steve didn't want me to show him my keynote because then I was framing his thoughts. He's like, we're going to make our own path here. We're going to create our own content. We're not going to, you know, I know YouTube and a lot of the internet is like, TikTok, someone does it and 5 million people do the same thing with a slight variation, mm. right? He's like, we don't have to be that way. He was never that way. We just got to do what feels right with our own brand. And I'm always like, well, you know, how do we identify a brand? How do we find a brand? He's like, the brand's going to come. The brand's going to come. We're going to get there. And um, I think it has finally. I think we have a really good voice with Grady Rains, who's really led all of our content. I love, you know, I'm jealous of FaZe. They've created a massive business and a great, you know, audience and um, 100 Thieves, uh, they have a terrific brand and, you know, great apparel. Um, but those are different businesses. Like I never, you know, because it was a hobby, it was never like G2 and it was all about Carlos or it was never Andy Din for TSM. It was never Nade Shot, you know, for 100 Thieves. I don't like, as an investor, I don't like single point of failure businesses. In my no. mind, those are single point of failure businesses. If Carlos, you pull Carlos out of G2, you pull Nade Shot, you know, you know they have courage out of out of 100 Thieves, I think they're going to suffer to an extent, you know? Yeah. We're not like that at all. I don't like the fact that I have three brands. Would I love for the Huntsman to be energy and for Shock? Yeah, but I had no choice with Blizzard Activision. They made us, you know, create new IP. Uh, so that makes it harder, you know? Um, but the growth we've seen, especially with energy, is because we've just been super authentic and uh, trying to put a whole bunch of stuff up and see what works and finding our voice and, and then having a real conversation as opposed to, you know, like we don't tweet out like, hey, where's everyone landing today? Like that's just not our thing on Twitter. Yeah. We're trying to get a bunch of responses. So uh, we make a lot of content, a lot more I think than people give us credit for because we have three brands. If you look, I mean, Hector puts out a piece every other day. He has a live show on Fridays. We have a podcast on Wednesdays. He has a podcast on Thursdays. Uh, the Look at our, I mean, people are surprised when they go to Energy's YouTube. It's like, oh, you've got like four, one million vi view videos. You know, for you guys, it's nothing. But for us, you know, in the last six weeks like it's happening so uh i feel like it's coming together on that level but i do feel like everyone needs a common enemy <laughs> everyone needs uh something to shoot for and i send all the time people hate it. i'm just like have you seen this have you seen this have you seen this and this amazing look at the font you know i'm like steve like, look at the font that the 100 thieves use it's phenomenal yeah. i love the way you know nate shot does this intro and you know courage is so genuine here so uh you know i think you have to do that yeah, I, I think I, I love looking at the esports landscape. I, I think you can definitely do it without making it as like, oh, we need to emulate that. But I think right. it's it's super it's super interesting. Um, for, you know, learning like like you said, like strengths of what another person is doing, but also like the weaknesses. You know, like I I, I find hundred thieves fascinating i look at them and i'm like okay their brand is undeniably really really strong you know if you if people are talking big esports orgs 100 mm -hmm. thieves is always going to come up but then i look at their their content and i'm like okay but like the viewership is you know actually quite low compared to a lot of other orgs you know mm -hmm. like um 
There's a lot of orgs that are getting way higher engagement and viewership on all their posts, but 100 Thieves is still a bigger conversation piece. And then trying to, you know, look mm -hmm. into why that is. Is it, you know, but, but just, you know, understanding those factors behind, I think, the strengths and weaknesses of different orgs is, is really interesting. The thing that's been most fascinating to me is, you know, we all started with a bunch of teams. And now, if you notice, they've skinnied down. Like, we have, I don't yeah. know, seven. Uh, Liquor still has a ton, but, like, you know, Cloud9 had, like, 20, and now they have 10. And it just, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work also because the algorithms work against you. Like, you know, we put a Fortnite video up and it kills it on YouTube. Then we put a Rocket League up. We have this, the we have like the dream meme team for Rocket. It's like our old Overwatch team with, with and it kills it. And then we'll put up a Valorant video and then it tanks our Fortnite video that we put up next and whatever, yeah. you know, like you have to have that familiarity. And, and Twitter is like, wait, I love your Rocket League team. Stop tweeting all this stuff about Call of Duty. Like you can't have nine communities in one place. It became very hard. And so, you know, it, that's a lesson to learn. Like we're finally figuring out how to do more with less and bigger. And, you know, we'll go for the clicks, you know, as opposed to having 10 smaller guys and and, and see what that can do for us. And what I feel finally is the biggest blessing of this whole thing is, you know, this year has been that like we have people who want to join energy because it's a platform now that they feel that they can get bigger with. Like you do such a good job. You pick up somebody and he's somewhat, yeah. you know, well known. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's 10 times the size and you've cross pollinated with everybody else. and It's a big family and everybody gets it. Right. And, and what actually, you know, what I, a big compliment for you, what I was thinking, sorry, losing my voice about what you've done is that you've done something very hard, which is you have, especially you Elliot in that you've you know what works for you right okay because you've done it you you've you've made a big business on of being Muzel but you then with with Grace and others have figured out not okay let me find other guys and stick them in this model of Elliot because that doesn't work right but what you figured out is you can take someone's individual attributes take what you've learned and then make them unique and special but all still yeah. part of a platform that fits together like when you get that formula down then people whether they recognize it or not they're like i want to be a part of that because they're going to help me grow there's bigger guys than i am here and i can you know work by brand but i can also contribute as opposed to before it used to be like okay, energy, how much are you going to pay me? You're going to pay me more than these other guys. And now it's like, yeah, I'm down. I want to do this stuff. I want to work with Grady. I want to make these videos. I want to do this thing in LA you're yeah. doing. And it feels good. It feels like, oh, we're finally accomplishing something here after five years. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And and yeah. okay, final final question yes. from me at least is esports. Where do you see it going as an industry? Like very, very broad, but I'm curious, just top line thoughts. Because obviously it moves so fast. You know, yeah. we've had the evolution into the more like structured kind of leagues, like with Call of Duty, Overwatch. Do you think there's going to be more of that? What What do you think is really going to I think happen? the leagues are really, really important. Uh, as much as we poop on them and you could say Overwatch League, this or that, like if you don't have that structure, it's really hard to make an investment. Like we sold our Counter-Strike team and we were at number two in the world at the time and everyone's like, why? And you're, you're, you were, I bet you feel bad now. I'm like, no, I like, you know, bought low and sold high. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know what's happening with there. I don't own anything. I don't own a slot. I don't have any IP. There's nothing but the salaries of the guys and whatever sponsors I get. And it's hard now that it's not just a hobby or fun business or business run by the players. Like if you are 
if you're taking millions and tens of millions of dollars, which is what it takes to run these businesses, you got to own something. You got to have something there. So those leagues give you stability. They give you a, a commissioner to bitch about. They give you standard contracts. They give you agents. You know, they give you equity in something. So I can say energy is worth this amount of money because these are kind of our baseline stuff uh, things. So that I think is really important. And people are asking for more and more of it. So I think you'll see more and more sophisticated leagues. But I also think, and I hope and I pray, and this is my message to the world, the key to esports making it, in my mind, is not the public, the game. Of course, the game's got to be great. You can't bolt on an esports or something that doesn't work. And it's not the player base because the, player, the, the players are amazing, the, the competitors, right? And they're doing pretty well right now. They're making some pretty good money, some of these guys. And the, and clearly the game developers are making some great money. And in the middle, you've got us, the esports org. And I'm not crying poor here, but you know, none of us are profitable businesses. We're getting there, but we're growing. We're building our businesses. You have to have a relationship where you're meaningful to the publisher. If you're not meaningful, you're like, oh, okay, uh, energy's out. They're not in this game anymore. Here comes uh, FaZe. Here comes 100 Thieves. Here comes Sentinels. They're a new group. They have a bunch of money. Oh, look at the mm. Gen G. They just raised $50 million. They'll take the spot. And, and you don't get anything, right? You need to work with the publisher. The publisher needs to work with you. They need to value the org because we're the ones taking care of the players. We're the ones mm. bringing, you know, like uh, I remember we were talking when we originally announced our Overwatch roster. We had our investors. We had Shaq, Jennifer Lopez, Alex Rodriguez, Marshawn Lynch, and Michael Strahan announced that. How much money do you think that would have been for Blizzard to pay those five guys to do that? But they did it for free because they were investors in energy. Like we're bringing a lot of yeah. value. We're taking care of young minds and, and they're all like my boys and I love them all. And we make sure they're fed and housed and mentally feeling great about themselves and growing and learning. And the game, developers aren't doing that. They're not doing anything yeah. with that. They're throwing it over the fence. So until there's a relationship where there's three equal parties here, player base, players, competitors, uh, developer and org, we're going to have a lot of orgs go out and under and just figure out this relationship. It's hard and, and want to be something else when they grow up beside just a team. Yeah. Okay. Andy, Amazing. last question from me. Um, what are your top three leadership tips or lessons leadership that you've learned tips. over your career? Uh, okay. Not even leadership. I guess like what are the three top three lessons you've learned? Yeah. Sure. I would say number one is take everybody out of their comfort zone. Uh, there was a famous football coach. I think it was Newt Rockney in, in America and he, he was a dick and they'd be like, why are you so, you know, challenging to everybody and steve was yeah. the same way right like he'd find out you know elliot's you know mom and dad were very successful and elliot always wanted to please his father and he never could and he'd keep that you know he'd keep that in his mind and then he'd whip it out at some point when you've made a lousy presentation and say like you think your dad would be proud of that performance you just made today <laughs> right and, and i'm not saying that way but unless you're uncomfortable it's really hard to grow Right. So unless you're thrown into that, uh, that opportunity to sit with Steve Jobs, did I ever think I could do that? No. So your staff won't grow unless you make them uncomfortable. You know, everyone in this generation, including mine, wants to get a job and feel comfortable and be, you know, contributor and, and, and be part of a team. And you have to create that environment, but you also have to push them to do something else. Otherwise, they're just punching a clock and coming in and out. And if you're a startup, you can't afford to have anybody pushing a clock. You need someone to call you up and say, Grace, I know it's 11 o'clock and I, I'm sorry. I just had the best idea. Maybe you think it's trash, but can I tell you, I know I've only been here 10 days, but I have a really good idea. And you're going to go, well, even if the idea is terrible, I like this kid because he's thinking about my business at 11 o'clock at night because you've yeah. empowered him to do yeah. that. You made him uncomfortable. So that's a big one. Um, 
let's see. Um, you know, you got to be really loyal to your guys. Like you, they, they got to want to win, right? You got to treat them right. We had a big win with clicks. We never expected to have millions of views and 200,000 concurrence at the announcement. And we were all in different parts of the country. And I got everybody, you know, somewhat late at night. And I said, emergency meeting on Zoom. You got to get on Zoom or we're on Discord and you got to bring a beer. And I was like, what? Did we sell the cup? Like, no, we're just going to celebrate the good things because a startup is such a messy, awful world. And it goes left and left and left and right and center and left and right. And it and ends up nowhere where you started, start, start, started and the journey is definitely better than the, the result, even if you end up doing something wonderful, that you need to celebrate the good things because there's so many bad things that happen all the time, right? So if you have a good day, make sure everybody celebrates it because it feels even better than you think it does to them to, to have you acknowledge that, like, let's have a good time here and, and, and celebrate something. That's great. And then the last one would just be, these are all for startups, you know, because that's, that's all I know. But like the day we sold the company to Apple, uh, Steve was nice enough to send Peter Oppenheimer, the CFO to Boston to tell the company with me. And I did it like, I have an all company call. I do it even now. I do my board meeting and I present the board deck to the company. I was like, full transparency. Here's where we're at, you know? We're shit in the bed or we're doing great, but you gotta know, cause we're all in this together. And so I do the presentation. And then I said, you know, this is a really interesting date because two years ago today, uh, this guy made this presentation and changed our business. And I showed a video of Steve announcing the iPhone because, you know, we were nothing until the iPhone came out, really. And yeah. um, and I said, and by the way, there's somebody here, you know, who wants to, I forget the story. And then we went out and I said, and basically today we're announcing we've just sold our company, Apple. And I looked around and I honestly felt like everyone was off the floor. They were so unbelievably happy. And it was the most exhilarating moment of my life for about 45 seconds. I was just like, this is unbelievable. And everybody was jumping and hugging. And it was like, we just look up with the apple. Someone cared about what we did, Steve Jobs. And then I got unbelievably sad within 10 seconds. I was like, it's over. It's over. It's yeah. never going to be mine anymore. It's never going to be the journey. It's never going to be the little guys in Boston fighting against the groups in New York and San Francisco. And it was over. And all those relationships were going to be different. And the dynamic was going to change. And we were just a cog in the wheel. And it was okay, but it was over. And if you didn't enjoy it along the way, you're going to miss it when it's gone. Trust me. Andy. Amazing. Thank and you. That's my masterclass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for being you, so guys. generous with your time tonight. Um, Thank you. We're really grateful, awesome. and I love hearing your stories. So, well, I love um, watching what you guys are doing, and hopefully when this world gets stops being stupid and healthy, we can get together and do something, because all our guys love you. We'd love to do some stuff with your crew. I mean, you've got an amazing Fortnite crew, so do we. Let's do some energy crossover. Absolutely. So much fun Always. stuff. Collabs. Some guys. Collabs. Andy mentioned it throughout the podcast, but he and Hex have their own podcast that I believe they've just released episode three of. It's the Energy yes. Duo podcast. We'll have it linked first thing in the oh, description. You. you can go and listen to way more of Andy and Hex's stories to absolute legends of the industry. So um, I've started listening to it and I loved last week. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hex, Hex is way more, is, is much cooler and more interesting than I am, but uh, uh, it's fun. It's I not true. Really it's not it. true. Yeah. And we're getting to know each other really well through it. So, but uh, we've been listening to yours is a great format and hopefully, uh, you know, everybody stays healthy and we can, we can see each other soon. Sounds hope so. Guys, thank Please you so much it. for listening to this week's episode. We will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.